Good morning. Welcome to the Resistance Roundtable. It comes to you the second Saturday of each month from 10 to 11 a.m. And in this hour, we'll consider various aspects of the new political landscape through the first 50 days of the Biden administration with our regular panel, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, Scott Harris, and myself, Richard Hill. We must not let another month go by without acknowledging that we recently blew through the fifth anniversary of this show with neither a blush nor a tear. And that's right, Ruth and Scott, Resistance Roundtable began on November or in November 2016, barely paused to declare mission accomplished after the November 3rd defeat of Donald Trump before forging ahead for more commentary and political perspective. So congrats to all, and may we keep on rolling right through 2021. So our panel today, Ruth Ann Baumgartner teaches English at Central Connecticut State University and is active in the American Association of University Professors, which is uh, one of the topics of our uh, show today. She, is also, she also directs plays for the Westport Community Theater, which is still dark during the pandemic, but hopefully soon to return. Scott Harris is the host of Counterpoint, a public affairs show that airs every Monday right here at WPGAN at 8 p.m. And he is also the executive producer of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, a nationally syndicated show that also airs here on WPKN. Um, I host the first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio Show, which airs, obviously, on the first Tuesday of the month from 8 to 11 p.m. Uh, the Organic Farm Stand, and um, I'm also on the roster of hosts for the public issues show Mike Check, which airs every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. I take the second Saturday slot, and I'll be here tomorrow with one of our experts in um, cannabis, all things cannabis, Terry Hopper, who's going to talk about the legislative action that's uh, afoot in our state government and uh, all the kinds of games that are being played up there to try to... Uh, make it a more progressive or less progressive program. Well, this week we'll also be joined by two guests on the phone, John Nichols, journalist, prolific author, and national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine, who will offer his assessment of the 50, first 50 days of the Biden administration and what strategies Democrats will need to follow to defend and extend these early progressive victories. Next, we'll hear from Cindy Stretch, professor of English at Southern Connecticut State University and co-chair of the, the CSU, University Connecticut System. State University, got it, of the American Association of University Professors. She's on the org organizing committee at Southern Connecticut State University, and she is the co-chair. She will be here to discuss the radical organization of the state university system including major cuts to the teaching staff, including adjunct and full-time professors, that is being pushed by the Board of Regents and resolutely resisted by the American Association of University Professors. So with a couple of minutes before being joined by John Nichols, let's turn to our panelists for their micro-comments. 
Ruthann, what's on your mind today? Generally, I guess what I have to say this morning is that even though I believe in resistance to fascism and its uh, related credos, I think that now and then we have to let ourselves enjoy what victories we get. And although Joe Biden was not my choice during the primaries, the default vote I cast for him in the Connecticut primary, because he was the only choice left, turns out to be quite all right with me. Of course, though, I'm very angry that the grand old partiers don't seem to want to leave the land of Trump or hold him and his deluded and violent followers accountable for anything, no matter how bad or how blatant. The party that smugly repeated after the 2016 election that elections have consequences evidently feels that sometimes those consequences can be set aside by those who lost. But... Here on Resistance Roundtable, we will have plenty to say, alas, about their plans to scrap the Constitution and a shocking number of our freedoms along with it, including the freedom to protest assaults on our other freedoms. And that will probably take up a number of shows. Um, Still, as Charlie Sykes said on Nicole Wallace's show the other day, President Biden's most recent speech to the nation was so normal that it was disconcerting, and, I quote, no whining and no crack pottery. Celebrate an inclusive and thoughtful president, savor that new word, crack pottery, and use it, but also cherish your principles and stay vigilant. Thanks, Ruth. Well said. You're welcome. Thank you for the micro-commentary. Scott, what are you thinking about today? One thing that uh, I know we'll be touching on with uh, John Nichols today is the passage of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which, uh, among other things, provides a lot of relief to small businesses, individual families, and with the uh, child tax uh, credit is going to cut child poverty in half, as predicted by folks who know this stuff. And uh, another important uh, passage of some legislation happened in the House with the For the People Act, H.R. 1, equally if not more important for the future of our democracy. This legislation is critical to repair our broken democracy that we've we've seen certainly um, in, in stellar relief over these past four years, but even more so now with the Republican Party all across the country Uh, proposing now 253 pieces of voter suppression legislation in 43 states. And uh, it's really, uh, according to folks who who track the history of this kind of thing, say it's really uh, reminiscent of the Jim Crow era in terms of just blatant, racist, uh, you know, partisan-driven voter suppression uh, mechanisms that the Republicans are trying to put in place all across the country. with the uh, American Rescue Plan, they were able to use reconciliation to avoid the uh, the 60 vote rule in the Senate to pass that uh, that uh, piece of budgetary legislation. But with the uh, the HR1 for the People Act, that's not going to be possible. Uh, what they're going to have to do is address the problem of the uh, the Jim Crow era filibuster, which was used to uh, halt civil rights legislation. Well, the Democrats with their, you know, 50 vote, 50 votes in the House and uh, the tie-breaking vote from Vice President Harris, uh, they have the ability to change the rules of the Senate, which many people are advocating they do, to uh, either get rid of the filibuster altogether 
or to at least carve out an exception for voting rights and civil rights legislation. And if they don't do that, if the Senate doesn't do that, if we are stuck with this voter suppression that is going to come down on us like a hundred tons of bricks, it's going to really degrade our democracy to the point where it really won't even be recognizable. Acknowledging the fact that our democracy for many tens of hundreds of years has uh, been deeply flawed. But this will put it over the edge into the terminal phase, I believe. So let's hope that uh, the Democrats in the Senate rise to the occasion, change those rules so that we can uh, get our democracy back on track. And I know John is uh, anxiously awaiting our uh, connection to him, so I'll be very brief. I just wanted to say that it's interesting, a lot of the comparisons between the current $1.9 trillion relief package that has just been passed and will be implemented almost immediately are being made to the, uh, the tax cuts, the 2017 tax cuts that uh, the, the Trump administration pushed through and which went 85% to the richest people in the, in the country. But I think uh, a more apt comparison would be between the, the $1.9 trillion package just passed and the package passed last spring about this time where a, a huge amount of money went out to many different types of programs, actually did distribute much-needed aid to small businesses, maybe much as, not as much as needed, but send out checks to everybody and had a lot of progressive uh, features to it, but at the same time had huge tax benefits and givebacks and basically give away money to huge corporations. But, but I think that the thing that the two had in common was it kind of stripped away the veil, this notion that the United States doesn't have any money, it can't spend it when, when needed on uh, social programs, it's, you know, it's broke, uh, we're, we have these huge deficits, and uh, we're, we're hamstrung to do anything. Well, all of a sudden, in the past two years, we've seen that that is just not the case. And uh, with interest rates so low, it's almost absurd not to take advantage of the money that could be used to help working class and middle class people. And that's precisely what the relief package, the $1.9 trillion relief package is, is going to do. So the landscape has changed. The question is, is this sort of kind of illusory hallucination or something that we're going through here with this this moment of banishing and totally discrediting of trickle-down economics and the ushering in of the progressive spending of the Treasury that is clearly, we have now been, we've now seen over two years, is available to be used for these purposes. Right now we're joined by John Nichols. John writes about politics for The Nation magazine and its national affairs correspondent. John is also a contributing writer to the Progressive magazine in these times and associate editor of the Capital Times, a daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. As many of you know, uh, John Nichols is a prolific author. Recent titles include Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America, as well as the genius of impeachment. And uh, his latest title is 
the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. John is a really good friend and longtime supporter of WPKN and independent non-commercial community radio all across this country. John, thank you. It's great to have you on the air again. It's an honor to be with you. And I was really appreciating Richard's comments there uh, just a moment ago. I think he's spot on. Well, maybe a, a first question, general question for you would be, uh, with with so much departure of the past four years with the new Biden administration, what's your assessment of where this, uh, this presidential administration is going, uh, as opposed to maybe what you thought would occur uh, before uh-huh. he was sworn into office? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, look, I, I think that uh, progressives have been sort of, I don't know what the proper word is, trained, inclined, something along that line, toward a view that uh, a Democratic administration will, will very quickly disappoint them. And that has happened in the three previous Democratic administrations, that of uh, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. They came in with great promises, great hopes, and then in each case, uh, they tended to very much constrain their vision to limit what they were going to do because of uh, a deficit hawk mentality, this pressure to balance budgets, to basically clean up the messes of the previous Republican administration. And, um, and so they didn't do everything that they could, and very quickly that had repercussions politically, i.e. Carter suffered severe setbacks in 78. Clinton lost uh, his ability to govern in 94. Obama, again, suffered severe setback and effectively was um, uh, disempowered in many ways in 2010, again, 2014. So, you know, you kind of get used to that. Um, Biden has been different. And uh, this is quite remarkable because Biden comes in many ways from very much the mainstream of the Democratic Party, perhaps more so uh, even than some of his predecessors. And yet, I think the times, the circumstances that we are in, the demands that exist, uh, as well as maybe some learning from those previous administrations, has caused Biden to operate in different ways. His immediate action uh, with executive orders uh, was a show of an understanding of the executive branch, of its power, of its potential, and he seized it. And obviously executive orders don't do everything, but they did a lot. And there's a lot of good that came of that, just in both uh, symbolically and practically reversing a lot of what Trump did. And then you move into, obviously, um, the American Rescue Plan, which was just passed. We could talk about it in, at a deeper level, uh, because I think there are real, you know, concerns here. And it's not all perfect. Uh, It should have had a $15 minimum wage. It should have had full $2,000 payments. They shouldn't have been means tested. Uh, More should have been done for the unemployed. Uh, You can find plenty of of criticism. But at a fundamental level, if we look at the overall package, this is a progressive package. And it is progressive economically. It's big. It spends the money that needs to be spent. It's also a a package that takes in the lessons we've learned in recent years and and recent decades uh, about the failings of previous stimulus initiatives, uh, both that they were too small and also that they didn't seek to address systemic racism, uh, unique challenges of uh, immigrants and others, in particular groups uh, and demographics within society. This 
legislation doesn't do everything right, but it strives in a lot of ways to do more. And so uh, on balance, I'm going to give Biden, I'm not going to give him an A plus or something like that, but uh, I'd put him, you know, he's definitely way beyond passing. He's in the, you know, kind of the AB range, I suppose. Um, and with some real potential to, to do some impressive stuff. One wonders whether he is really ex- taken on the Rooseveltian mantle and uh, intends to carry forward with more progressive initiatives and to really push through and ignore and eschew all the Republican pro-clutching, yeah. I should say, that, that has already begun and the ridiculous attempts to negate his, uh, his program so far. Do you think that this is his best shot, or do you see this as a somewhat profound transformation in the Joe Biden that we knew back in the uh, 80s and 90s? It's a little bit of both, uh, and, and that's the great question. Remember, we talked initially there about you know, kind of what kind of grade we're going to give somebody after the first 50 days. Well, the semester isn't done. Uh, and you occasionally will have someone who comes in and starts very strong and then stumbles on some critical tests or, you know, doesn't, doesn't get the assignments in. And uh, so I, I think that we're, it's still very much up for grabs as regards what Biden will do, and I have a lot of concerns. Um, I definitely believe that Joe Biden uh, wants to govern in a Rooseveltian way. And... Remember, Roosevelt wasn't quite as perfect as a lot of us assume. If somebody's written books about that era, uh, I can tell you that there's plenty to criticize in Roosevelt and that the left often criticized him for not doing enough in his day. But there was a striving and there was an effort to address the big issues in fundamental ways. And uh, I think that Biden appears to be in that camp, appears to have that willingness. And so that's a good thing. The challenge is whether he will use all of his power and all of his authority uh, to advance an agenda. We have yet to see that is to be the case. Uh, The Biden administration and Senate Democratic leadership did not reject the parliamentarians uh, ruling as regards the $15 minimum wage. They accepted, you know, constraints and restrictions there that were frankly very damaging. And they lost a, a a really important component of the American Rescue Act. Uh, and so there is some tendency to bend toward tradition, to bend toward rules, to not push quite as far as I think they should. And that concerns me. The other concern is that the American Rescue Act is sort of a unique entity. It was uh, enacted in a emergency moment in COVID, the pandemic, the economic play out of it, it remains an emergency. And so that gave you know some traction. It was also enacted as a reconciliation measure, uh, using some bending of the rules, or at least you know taking advantage of the rules, I should say, in a better way. Um, and that will be harder going forward. And so I think the great test of Biden's presidency is yet to come, and it will be uh, at whether they can actually pass measures that are not necessarily defined as emergency measures that are not necessarily defined as reconciliation without bending too far to the Republicans. And remember, we've got a lot of legislation piling up for the People Act, the George Floyd reform and policing measures, 
Um, we've got environmental legislation coming on, a host of other other important projects that are being put through the House. They're getting passed. Now they're going to the Senate, and nothing's happened, right? They're, there's not evidence that they're going to be moved. And this is going to create a real test, I think, basically in a matter of weeks. And for Biden, how he goes on that is is going to really be the measure of his presidency. And if he doesn't recognize the need um, to push things through the Senate, uh, either by getting rid of the filibuster or by finding some other model for doing so, um, then you're going to have an administration that did great initially and then seem to sputter out, or at least you have that risk. You know, before I, I pass it off to Ruth, I, I wanted to make the point that the, I guess it's H.R. 1, the, the Democracy uh, yeah, Enforcement for the People Act. Act. For the People Act. It is really the lifeline. It's, it's a safety net, I guess, for democracy, which is hanging by a thread. And uh, the only way that that's going to get action in the Senate and a possible enactment by the Senate is if the Democrats overturn the filibuster and, you know, get this this thing passed. The gerrymandering alone that is coming down the pike in this before the 2022 election, without even the Democrats losing a seat in the House, the, the mere reassignment of districts to Republicans in no-lose situations would flip the House to the Republicans. If that happens, everything that we've seen so far uh, and everything that we might see in the next weeks, it evaporates. That's it, right. And so this seems to me to be the most imperative thing that, that the Democrats have to do. And the question is, how can they do it? And do they have the fighting spirit to make that happen? I think that Democrats have within their caucuses the fighting spirit. There are definitely people who want to go big, and it's uh, certainly, you know, the, the identifiable figures, uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, to some extent, members of the squad in the House, uh, but, but it goes way beyond them. There's a lot of progressive members of Congress who want to do big things. There's simply no question of that, and who are ready to fight. Um, they... Unfortunately, the question is, where are they going to fight? You know, when does when does the time come? And uh, they didn't do it in the struggle with the parliamentarian over the $15 minimum wage. I think that was a mistake. And uh, and so they put this off. But it's only only a matter of time where, where they have to act. And to my view, the right move, the, the precisely right move, um, would be to bring the For the People Act. And to say, you know, we want to vote on this, an up-down vote, 50, you know, if it, in the Senate, if you get 50 votes and Kamala Harris splits it, then that's, uh, uh, you're going to pass it. And if the Republicans refuse, because this is a basic democracy measure, I mean, it's central to everything else, uh, I think they have to, at that point, take a filibuster on. Biden's resistant to that. Um, some of the Senate leadership are resistant to that. But this is absurd. This is, you know, if they're going to let this thing die, and frankly, let you know other initiatives die um, because they're unwilling to to you know upset some rules. Uh, you are right; the danger is very, very real, and it's not just gerrymandering; it's a host of other initiatives that are frankly genuine threats. And I'll take it one other thing: it's not just the For the People Act; it's also the John Lewis Voting Rights uh, measure that is has been proposed. They both need to be passed, and they both need to be passed very quickly. 
John, uh, just really quick before we pass it to Ruth, and that is uh, Jim Clyburn, uh, representative of South Carolina, big Biden booster, has said it's Mm -hmm. possible to carve out exceptions in in use of the filibuster, uh, making exceptions for voting rights or civil rights legislation is, you're alluding to that, the critical nature of this legislation. Is that is that a possibility? Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are they going to get on board that train? You think? Amazingly enough, Manchin seems to have shown some openness for a talking filibuster. He said that in some interviews he did last week. Um, that's very very good news uh, because there does seem to be some space there. Cinema, uh, more complex figure, hasn't been so open to such a, a move, but. Um, she comes out of actually some democracy movements in uh, Arizona before she moved very much to the center, even to the right on a number of issues. And so one hopes that, that you can do that. But frankly, if they're resistant, that's the point where a president, Joe Biden, uh, and a Senate leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, they have to put the pressure on. This is, you know, again, if we can't get Democrats to come together to figure out a way to protect American democracy, especially after what happened on January 6th, um, but frankly, we're in a huge crisis, and and uh, we're not we're not getting what we need out of democratic governance, or democratic party control of government. So uh, I do think it's a it's a big test, uh, but I think it's it's within the realm of reason, and it's certainly at the very least. Here's the easiest thing, Scott. At least it should be tried. At least they should try, because if they don't even make the effort to do it, um, then. Uh, we, we don't even know what might have been possible. Ruth Ann, your comments, questions for John? Uh, see, they left me for last, and they used my good questions. <laughs> so oh. you're, already, uh, you're already responding to them, John. But I woke up this morning and, and heard on the, on the news 43 states have these um, attempts to, in effect, re- bring back Jim Crow. And I realized when I was a kid, there were only 48 states. I mean, it, it's one thing to say, <laughs> to say, well, 43 states, that's a lot. Uh, but it, it's like almost all of them, as far as I'm concerned, uh, all yeah. turning uh, or uh, being the victims, perhaps, of efforts to turn them back uh, to the Jim Crow era, um, suppressing voting rights, suppressing uh, civil rights, suppressing the right to protest. Um, just about everything that we've needed, we needed to get, to get up to 1950. Um, I was going to ask you, being a person who gets maybe 2,000 requests for, for political donations every day in her email and having not much money, where would you say the pressure points are for the general run-of-the-mill um, Democrat che- uh, or progressive checking her email in the morning. Where are the uh, pressure points that you think would be most effective uh, in, that's a in great attempting question. to a salvage really... our democracy? Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I'm going to uh, give an answer, and I promise you this is not just to be nice to you. And Scott, for sure, will will tell you this has been my long-term answer to this this sort of question. Uh, give it to this this uh, community radio project and. Uh, Give it to uh, other uh, local community radio and, and community media projects. Uh, the number one way to protect and preserve and advance democracy in these times is to support independent, not-for-profit media, community media, uh, low-power radio, uh, websites that cover politics at the local level, 
as well as, you know, you can go up the food chain uh, to even places like Democracy Now! and others. But that's the answer to your question, because people need information about the struggle, about all the issues that are in play. Uh, they need information about elections and democracy as, you know, we actually get to the heart of the matter. And so supporting independent, not-for-profit community media uh, is, to my mind, the number one place where I recommend donations. And if you need a number two place, uh, I always say, and I know this, this may be a little off, you know, some of the other things we're talking about, I always say, you know, give to groups that are working, uh, working for peace. And, and the reason I emphasize that is that dialing down the military budget, dialing down the military industrial complex frees up money, and it also uh, weakens the lobbying power of, you know, not just military contractors, but uh, corporate America. And so I see those those as two areas, but I do really start with supporting independent, not-for-profit local media. This is a terrific answer. Thank you. I feel empowered, John. Ah, there you go. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning, and uh, appreciate all your work in the nation and the other venues you write. And I'm really honored to join you, the three of you, and I and I love the format of this show, the kind of deep, smart questions and the the give and take. I, I hope you're going from strength to strength, and you know you've always got my support. Well, John, we were joking that when we were planning the show, we all felt like we all had a Jones for John, <laughs> and uh, we weren't going to stop until we uh, we could satisfy it. So thank you so much for uh, being a part of the show. You're, you're kind of the adopted uncle, and uh, you're, you're, you're there when we need you, and uh, we definitely needed you today, so thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much. Well, you keep strong and keep on doing what you're doing. Take care, John. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye. That's John Nichols, author and national affairs correspondent with The Nation magazine. Yeah, and uh, we're going to move on now to our second interview, which will be with Cindy Stretch. She's a professor professor of English at Southern Connecticut State University and co-chair of CSUAAUP Organizing Committee who will discuss the radical reorganization of the state university system, including major cuts in the teaching staff, including um, adjunct teachers who are the easiest to uh, just pluck from their uh, precarious perches and dispose of. These changes are being pushed by the Board of Regents, and they're being stoutly and staunchly resisted by the American Association of University Professors. So this, this is a radical change that's going to be happening, could happen, as framed in the proposed Board of Regents contract, which is now floated and being uh, analyzed by the AAUP. It's going to mean some serious and major changes in our university system, and I, I think that Cindy Stretch is going to be able to tell us just how egregious these changes might be. Well, Cindy is on the line with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Cindy Stretch again, professor of English at Southern Connecticut State University and co-chair of the Connecticut State University American Association of University Professors Union Organizing Committee. Appreciate you being here, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me and for giving time to this topic. I think it's um, a topic that affects a lot more people in the state of Connecticut than maybe even they realize. 
um, the CSCU system, including not just the, the universities, but also the community colleges. We serve over 140,000 students in the state of Connecticut. So it's a lot of people who are going to be touched by the decisions that the Board of Regents are making right now and who um, this, is, this is their fight, too. Ruth Ann, you'd like to lead off here? Oh, yes. Well, uh, when I'm looking at this, Cindy, I, I, I feel this uh, foreboding familiarity in my stomach. This is a union-busting contract, if ever I've read one, and uh, or proposal, if ever I've read one. And I have read one because I went through a strike over a similar contract. It's extremely, uh, potentially extremely destructive. And I'd be happy to sit down and tell you stories if you, uh, at a later date if that would be at all helpful to you. Um, the, the thing that uh, looks most uh, con- concerning to me, besides the fact that it looks as if it's destroyed to take all authority away from the faculty and, and from the pr- uh, good principles and practices of higher education, generally speaking, um, the thing that uh, worries me the most is that uh, I'm sure that some of their justification is the enrollment declines consequent on COVID and the terrible mm-hmm. catastrophes that have happened because of COVID, and it's all they can do to survive because of those losses. But uh, as you know, and as I know from having done distance education and, and the fast scramble that we did in the state universities this past year, many of the clauses in this contract seem to be uh, efforts to keep in place some of the disastrous changes we had to temporarily make because we couldn't have normal uh, teaching situation. Um, and I wonder if you want to use that as a kind of jumping-off point for comparison, uh, what they're asking and what we hoped with in the past year uh, and that may have made us even more skeptical about their requests. Yeah, um, thanks for that. I mean, you, you gave up a really good overview of what sort of the the, the challenges that we're facing. Um, so I think that you're absolutely right that um, the Board of Regents is and the system office administrators are using COVID as cover. Um, you know, we see this in other places in the country right now and other um, institutions of higher education, but um, but Marco Jakian started laying the groundwork for this over a year ago. Um, so they're, they're talking about enrollment declines that were accelerated um, under COVID. But, um, but they're also sort of shifting the blame for um, their mismanagement of funding and, you know, the debacle that is students first. Um, and, and putting that on on uh, enrollment trends, and I think that what we've seen with with the in the last year with COVID is that um, first of all the students are really challenged by distance learning. So that's not to say that there's not an appropriate place for that, you know, here and there for certain for certain student populations, but um, but overall uh the you know we've worked really hard to to support students through this you know through this last year but the students don't don't like it they're they're clamoring for you know on ground experiences in the fall but at the same time 
they're also worried about safety. So they're in, you know, kind of a push me, pull you situation like we all are. Um, but to, to your point about the contract proposal, so for instance, one of the proposals is um, uh, that they that management wants to um, re- retain intellectual property rights over all materials designed for online learning. So that would mean that if I design a course and work hard to make sure that that's a good course online, that the university owns it, which means that two two scenarios there, which means that um, that faculty are going to be disincentivized to produce those innovative and and carefully individualized materials, right, that speak to our students, not just to, you know, some package out there. And and second of all, that that they're really opening the door to, um, you know, to capital to come in to corporate, corporate um, mm-hmm. you know, curriculum packages to be facilitated through online courses instead of students getting the um, access to to the expertise and um, and individualized guidance that a, a actual professor in charge of the curriculum could provide. That's especially worrisome because uh, you could find find yourself at some point having control of that course that you designed taken completely out of your hands and That's put right. somewhere else. And it might still even be attached to your name in some way, which would be a complete violation of your your academic rights and your intellectual rights uh, but right. but it's your program and it's taken out of your hands because they can find somebody who will deliver it cheaper uh, or whatever their whatever their motive, right. motives are yeah that's one of the list of horrors and i just want to make it clear that you know these are the bor's proposals the the faculty is actively organizing to push these back, to, to create enough political pressure um, on the regions to take some of these horrible proposals off the table. And I just want to say, like, we, you know, at the CSUs, we are, we are, like, we're giving students a real edu- a real university education at this point, right? And that's why these proposals are so, so much of a gut punch, right? Because the things that we've worked so hard to develop and enhance and maintain over the last years, even in the face of decreased funding, those are the things that the the excellent education, the individualized instruction, the attention to students who are um, who are facing real challenges in their life in order to stay in school, in order to graduate, and also the students who are just ready to take off intellectually. We've been we've been supporting those students and giving them a pretty affordable education relative to, you know, other options in the state and elsewhere. And um, and so the idea that these proposals really undermine our ability to provide an actual university education is um, is really troubling. And then, you know, the, the union busting stuff is just, just beyond the pale, really. Cindy, I, I had a question about... Uh the attitude of Governor Ned Lamont uh, about this proposal. I'm not sure mm-hmm. what any, if any, influence he has on the Board of Regents. And a second part of that question would be, there's going to be an infusion, as I read it, of $4 billion into the Connecticut state budget from the American Rescue Plan, and wondering mm-hmm. if the, if that 
if if the budgetary issues are all uh, what's triggering these proposals that we're talking about today, and if this would, uh, you know, ameliorate some of the the concerns that they have about enrollment rates and uh, uh, potential budget cuts. Yeah. So we just got um, the first breakdown of where the um, where the the CARES Act money will likely go. Um, yes, I think yesterday or the day before. So we're, we're on our end, we're still, still trying to figure that out. And I think the, um, to be fair, the system office is probably trying to figure that out too right now. Um, but the, um, the, the money that goes to, um, to meet the needs faced by COVID, right? Like all of the plexiglass and the, you know, the extra hours that our staff and facilities people spent um, getting our classrooms and our ready and our IT up and running. Um, there's that money, um, but then the question that you know, like, what about um, what about the the funding streams going forward and students um, returning to residence halls? I mean, one of the things that we've realized in in this whole um, mess with with COVID is that. The funding system for the state universities is heavily dependent on students living in residence halls um, and eating in the dining hall. So, um, so that money, you know, the the students being paid back for their housing deposits and all that has created part of this big deficit. Um, but the the um, funding for the, from the federal government, um, we're not sure that it's going to, even if it meets, let me put it this way, even if it, even if it um, fills those gaps, these budget proposals are about um, management power, right? They're about, mm-hmm. they're about the, admini- the high, upper level administrators taking control of the curriculum, taking control of the processes whereby um, uh our faculty peers um, evaluate and recommend people for renewal, promotion, and tenure, whereby we um, we we um, recommend our peers for um, very competitive sabbaticals. Right, what something that maybe um, faculty and other institutions don't realize. We compete for research funds. We don't. They're not built into our um, to our working lives. So those it's that power grab that's still going to be on the table and still going to have to be fought back even if the um even if some of the deficits are filled by the federal money. Cindy, this is Richard. Can you explain what the uh, procedure is going forward here? Does the Board of Regents have basically unlimited power to to enact these things or are there any governmental uh, gubernatorial or uh, legislative hurdles that they have to go across to uh, to actually put these things in place. So um, that's an important issue. So we are in contract negotiations right now. So I think we just finished the fourth week of negotiations where the two teams 
sit down in a room and the, the negotiators go back and forth. Those have been very contentious, and I think you'll be hearing some more about the level of disrespect that we've met at the table from the from the system office's um, chief negotiator. But the Board of Regents, um, they these are their proposals, right? They have to own these. The um, and so uh, so we're negotiating and we're trying to. Um, we're trying to um, push back against the ones that we think are unacceptable at this point. Um, and also at the same time, trying to come to some agreement um, on the issues that we can agree on, right? There are always some housekeeping issues and those sorts of things. Um, and there are some there are some issues that, you know, are some ideas that are mutually beneficial, and we'll get to those um, uh through the course of negotiations, we hope. But the, um, the, the regents can decide at any moment to not put some of their proposals for it, right, to take their proposals off the table. They don't have to continue to try to get what they said they wanted in their opening proposals. But if we don't build the political power behind our positions, then there's no reason for them to not just continue to try to get whatever they can get. So it's not it's not a foregone conclusion that these things will be enacted. That's that's one of the reasons I was so happy that you chose to bring this issue up on your program because we really need people to understand and to get engaged in this to to communicate with their legislators. For instance, we've had um, we've had some really uh, powerful positions taken by some of the state legislators, some on the higher ed committee, some in labor, um, saying you know asking hard questions in the public hearings of the regents. Um, of President Gates, the president of the of the CSCU system, so we we really want to push back. We have um, we have another few months of uh, negotiations to work through and to hopefully you know make some progress in our positions, and then um, at the end of the day, if we can't agree, the um, the issues that remain unresolved go to arbitration, and um, and then. Uh, and then the arbitrator makes the makes the awards at that point. So the the state legislature does not have to approve. The general assembly does not have to say thumbs up or thumbs down to these things. So they do actually have to. Um, they do have to um, uh, approve the contract. But if it's an arbitrated award, then um, then that gets so uh, then that gets a little bit more um, complicated in terms of what the legislators legis- the legislature's role is at that point. But yes, they do have by statute they have to all of the state employees bargaining um, agreements have to be approved by the legislature. How many faculty, both adjunct and full time, are affected by? Uh by these uh, proposed contract changes? So in the Connecticut State University system, we have just a little shy of 3,000 full and part-time faculty members, and that includes um, professors, counselors, librarians, coaches, and trainers. And adjunct faculty is part of that? That's correct, yes. The the, um, part-time colleagues are members of our bargaining unit. Cindy, I just wanted to briefly ask you, what's the role of students here? Are students, uh, you know, I, I, 
I imagine we're talking about their education, that they will play a critical role in terms of their views on these changes and how it will affect their education and their value of their degrees. That's right. So we are um, we're uh, starting to talk to students about this, trying to be very um, objective and clear about like these are the proposals. You know, what do you think? Um, uh, and so um, the students that we've talked to so far have been really concerned. Um, we've had quite a few students who have signed up to testify, um, not just in the public hearings um, for appropriations in higher education, but also at the last three Board of Regents meetings. And, you know, their their testimonies are quite powerful. They 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 feel personally sort of attacked in, in this because it's their um, relationships with faculty and what they're able to accomplish with faculty in their education that they 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 see it very clearly as as an attack on the quality of the education that that they're trying to pursue and for many of our students right working class students i think they're i mean in the in the cscus um that 35 percent of our students are have pell grants so you know these are students who are working really hard to get into college and to and to stay and graduate and the idea that you know the board of regents are proposing increasing faculty workload so that so that we literally have less time to spend with individual students when the students learn about that they're irate right and so you know this is their fight too and um and i think that you know, as they're learning about what's going on, they're in, you know they're they're looking for ways to um, to participate in it, and we're we're going to be circulating a petition um, in the next week or so to make sure that you know students can start informing other students, and then and then it'll be up to them to decide what they want to do about it. 